Recovery Elevator, episode 176. I'm not going to end up like my dad. I can quit anytime I want to. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Zach. He's from Fort Collins. He's 31 years old, and he's been sober for 514 days. Nice job, Zach. Before I get started, I want to read a couple quotes. Unfortunately, I don't know who said these quotes. Somebody emailed me them, but I'd like to share them with you anyways. First quote is, there are many excuses to drink, but there are no reasons. Next quote, when you're an addict, the only line you can cross but cannot come back from is death. You might be saying to yourself, whew, that was close. Uh, I'm, I got a, a slight little drinking problem here. Not an addict at all. Well, it's all kind of the same thing. Okay, let's get started. So after the interview with Zach, I'm going to say a couple words on the rehab industry. John Oliver did a fantastic segment on that, and there's going to be a link to that YouTube video in the show notes. Also, there's a link to the article, which gave me the inspiration for today's podcast episode in the show notes for this episode. Thank you, Mike, all the way out in Hong Kong. He's a rock star. Literally, he plays music to make his living out in Hong Kong. Uh, he does a great job. So Mike's going to put these links in the show notes. You can go to recoveryelevator.com, episode 176. So modern dating is making us drink more, and that's also making us less successful at it. Back in her single days, writer Zara Bari almost always threw back what she called a personality drink prior to the first date. Thanks to the drink or two, conversation on her dates flowed as freely as a just-opened bottle of Pinot Noir. But there was a clear downside also. She says, drinking gives me a false sense of connection with a person. If you can see my notes, connection is underlined. She says, if I've had two glasses of champagne, I can feel chemistry with anyone. Or she can deceitfully connect with anyone or perhaps anything. Zara eventually gave sober dating a shot. She says, it sharpened her dating spidey sense in pretty short order, and it led her to meeting her fiancé, a woman Zara loves without any champagne goggles on. How cool is that? Zara also says, Looking back, I realized that I drank so damn much in my early 20s because I was hanging out with people I didn't have anything in common with. Booze masked that ugly reality. She said, I told myself I needed a drink for so long that I believed it with every fiber of my being. Now, Zara's story probably sounds all too familiar if you're currently single. A 2014 survey from Plenty of Fish found that 36.4% of singles drink before going out, I imagine that's drinking alone, and 48.9% of people drink during the date, averaging two or three drinks during the course of an evening. This same survey found that 19.1% of guys have gotten drunk on the first date, go ahead and put me in that category, and so have 16.8% of women. It's not entirely surprising that modern dating and drinking are so thoroughly linked, most of us meet on apps, and the prospect of getting to know someone based on a short bio and four or five pics can be anxiety-provoking. Many people think drinking makes them a chiller version of themselves. And as we've covered on this podcast, drinking actually makes them a dumber version of themselves. So basically what we're covering in this podcast episode is dating and sobriety. There's so many articles out there saying that we need to drink wine to get the health benefits. Well, in reality, we could just drink the fruit and not the wine. But there's a lot of static and noise out there spinning alcohol in a positive favor. It's refreshing to see an accurately written article about how alcohol does not work in our favor when it comes to dating. 
In fact, in reality, it's quite the opposite. Not drinking works in our favor. But if we do drink during our dates, let's discuss some of the pitfalls and potential problems. So what if you constantly have the one to two personality drinks before your date, and then you have two to three more drinks during the date, that's five drinks total. And then let's say you don't become addicted to alcohol, but as we've discussed on this podcast, everyone is on a spectrum leading to alcoholism if you're drinking. But let's assume that you don't become addicted to alcohol. Your relationship with this person is based on this personality that isn't your own. When will you phase out of the drinking, right? So you continue to drink to get the personality drink inside you to feel comfortable. We know that your brain is just slowing down. You're not becoming a more chiller version of yourself. But when will you actually phase out of this drinking pattern? And will you do it solo? Will you bring your partner on board? I can see that being a big pitfall. Let's talk about why we have these pre-date drinks, drinking on the dates. Well, it's because of the pre-date jitters. Yeah, dating can be scary. We can feel nervous. We can feel uncomfortable. You're potentially meeting with somebody that you might spend the rest of your life with. This is kind of a big deal. You're going to want to approach this date the next hour with a potential life mate with all your natural systems fully in tune. You don't want to be fully tuned up by the alcohol, but you want all these internal systems to be online, to be cognizant of what's going on. That third drink that you had may make you miss a crucial red flag. Wait, what's that, Tom? You've had three kids removed from your custody? Uh, I think I heard that, but you know, I'm just going to have another sea breeze. And you know what? These jitters are going to happen if you're sober, buzzed, or drunk. But these jitters at the baseline foundation of them are healthy. You want these internal guardrails, these internal guidelines guiding you through the date. Here's another problem if you're blasted every date. You're going to have 50 first dates. God, that'd be a great movie title. I remember going on some pretty tipsy dates. And date three, I was like, hey, what's your first name again? I'm kidding. It wasn't quite that bad, but I ended up asking the same questions over and over until finally the date was like, Paul, you've already asked these questions. Here's another potential problem. You might be able to rebound after spilling a drink on yourself or your date, but if you get a DUI while driving your date home, you're never going to recover from that one. So what if you are successful in creating this courtship with this gal or guy of your dreams, you think everything is going great, and you find out that they didn't fall in love with you, the real you, because that's basically not the real you and you were under the influence of the alcohol. So this goes vice versa. What if you fall in love with somebody who's always tipsy? You're falling in love with somebody who isn't that real person. One materialistic problem I can foresee is, hey, Tammy, it's $17 beer night Tuesday. Do you want to go out? Yeah, you're going to save a hell of a lot more money not playing the have a couple drinks to make yourself feel more comfortable game. If you and your significant other met over drinks and then you built this relationship over more drinks and more drinks and uh, several gallons of more drinks after that, you might wake up one day and realize, holy shit, I have nothing in common with my girlfriend, boyfriend, or possibly spouse. You might be saying to yourself, damn it, why does Craig keep bringing up baseball? I don't care about the Chicago Cubs batting order. I don't care who's playing in left field. I don't care who's pinch hitting. I fucking hate baseball. If you are always pre-drinking before your dates and having those drinks during dates, you might miss your match. I read a fascinating study a couple years ago that they put 10 males and 10 females in a room. Before going into the rooms, a separate set of people gave the 10 males and the 10 females a ranking on order from 1 to 10 of their level of attractiveness. 
After about 10 to 15 minutes inside the room mingling, everybody was asked to match up with another partner. Every single person matched up with their correlating match. For example, the people that were given a one matched up with the other one in the room and same way all the way up to 10. That's pretty cool. So if you've always got beer goggles on, you're probably going to miss your match. Here's a potential pitfall that a lot of us who are listening to this podcast right now can relate to. Oops, I just lapped the pace car. What that means is we have a goal to go one for one with our date. And then wait a second, we're not going one for one. Now we're going two to one with our date. Now three to one, I'm shit faced and my date is still sober. Oops, I lapped the pace car. At first, dating without drinking is tough. So what happens if you get cravings while on a date? Well, perhaps it's too early to be dating. If you're not confident that you can go out on a date without drinking, give yourself some more time. Here's another strategy. Direct that emotion, that energy into the intention of getting to know the other person. This would be called asking a question and listening. Believe it or not, not a lot of people are very good at this. Here are some questions you can ask. Hey, Betsy, what skill would you like to master? What would be the most amazing adventure to go on? What state or country do you never want to go back to? What songs have you completely memorized? What game or movie universe would you most like to live in? Okay, so you're confident that you can go out on a date without drinking. What happens if it's an awkward date? Ooh, this is actually good news. Another term for an awkward date is the person's not the one or it's not a good fit. Without the three ridiculously priced microbrews, you'll be able to clearly make that call in probably 45 minutes or less. There is no need for awkward date after awkward date with the same person when there's alcohol involved. Despite everything that I've mentioned so far in this episode, I still know there is a handful of listeners who are saying, okay, seriously, that's not possible. How do you date sober? Well, the good news is actually the best way to date, to get to know somebody, to connect with another human being is sober. The only way we can connect on a deeper level, the level needed to move forward in the relationship is to do it without alcohol. We need to listen to those internal red flags. The butterflies in our stomach, they've always been there with human beings for thousands of years. They're healthy. We don't want to squash that. They're telling us something. So perhaps after several awkward dates, you'll go on a date and your heart will be able to accurately ask the other person, Hey, Mindy, this was fun. Would you like to go on another date? And here's the segment where Bernie Madoff gives tips on stock advice. I'm kidding, but I'm going to give my two cents on this. Pick an activity that isn't contemporaneous with drinking, like fencing. Kidding, maybe not fencing, but go on a hike. And if the person responds with a hike, perfect, I'll bring a six pack. Then, boom, you already know it's not the one. All of this boils down to connection. I've heard before, and I firmly agree, the opposite of addiction is connection. There is no way to connect with a life partner when alcohol is involved. Okay, enough out of me. Let's hear from Zach. But before we hear from Zach, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. 
For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Zach, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for joining us, Zach. Zach, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Uh, today is 514 days. Nice job, Zach. And man, before we hit record, you told me that was January 1st, 2017. I love those sobriety dates, um, you know, December 31st, January 1st. Yeah, that's a day where most people don't have work, and a lot of people roll the festivities into that day, including myself many times, so I'm excited to get into that. But before we get any further, Zach, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, well, I'm originally from Nebraska, but I live in Fort Collins, Colorado. I am married, and for fun, I really enjoy to, uh, you know, go out boating, hiking, uh, fishing. You know, I climb the 14er mountains that are around here in Colorado, and that's a lot of fun. Nice. How many 14ers have you done? I've done three, and I'm conquering Long's Peak uh, this summer, so that'll be four so far. Yeah, I hear Long's Peak is actually a tough one. It is, yeah. It's uh, one of the toughest. It's in the top ten of the toughest ones in Colorado. So yeah, and is there sixty-four, sixty-three, fourteeners? Yeah, something like that. I think I'm. Yeah, it's it's in the fifties or the low sixties. Yeah, uh, I made one. I'm from Colorado. Or I live. I moved to Colorado when I was twelve. My parents still live there right outside of Vail, and I made one attempt at a 14er, and we, we got up at like 4 a.m. because you got to get there early because the weather comes in. But, yeah, the, the, the weather came in and did not summon it. So, yeah, good for you, man. That, that's awesome. Yeah, well, it's great to have you on the podcast. And, and before we hit record, you mentioned you're nervous. Totally fine. Even I get a little bit nervous before I hit the record button. But we're just going to have a fun conversation. We're going to be speaking from the heart. And it's your story, Zach. So it's tough to mess up. <laughs> so it's just going to be a good time. <laughs> but yeah, let's uh, let's back it up a little bit, Zach. When did you perhaps start to, to realize that you had a problem with alcohol? Well, originally I kind of realized I had a problem when I was in my mid-20s. I went out and I was partying a lot with my friends and I just, I kept telling myself, you know, like not going to end up, you know, not going to end up like my dad. I can quit anytime I want to, but you know, I was in my early twenties and you know, I just kept wanting to party, but you know, slowing down, going into my, you know, mid twenties, I realized that a lot of people weren't partying the same as I was, you know, my friends were kind of, you know, moving on with their lives uh, out of college and not, not wanting to party and so I basically just kept doing what I was doing and uh, I actually got a DUI when I was about 24 and uh, that's when I kind of realized you know that I did have a problem and there were a lot of a lot of attempts to you know moderate and quit and you know just drink normally and it was was difficult Uh, I just kept trying you know to you know only drink on weekends and you know I would tell myself every morning you know I'm not I'm not going to drink today and you know by four or five o'clock I would I would be out drinking Mm -hmm. you know and it just kept getting to the point where you know four or five o'clock rolled around and I I had to have it and you know I had I you know I would be irritated you know upset if I couldn't get you know a drink or couldn't go out and you know party 
so that's uh you know kind of where i started to realize that i you know couldn't really control it but you know i just kept trying like you know i think like we all do we kept trying to find a way to you know for me to moderate and drink normally but it just never as you know it never yeah yeah so zach let me back it up a little bit you said i don't want to end up like my father is your father an alcoholic uh, yes, he is. He drinks on average a twenty-four pack of beer every single night, and he's, you know, I mean, he's the night he will give the shirt off of his back when he's sober, but when he's drinking, he's pretty mean. Um, yeah, is he, is he still pretty, drinking? Pretty mean. He is. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he, you know, he has no plans of ever quitting, and he's at the point where he can't usually make it beyond, you know, one or two o'clock in the afternoon, and he's got to have, you know, crack open that beer for the day, the first one. Yeah, so I'm going to ask ask a question. I don't think I've asked on this podcast yet. So I imagine when you grew up, there was probably some curiosity, maybe some resentment building about your dad. Like, why did, why does he, why does he drink so much? And has that changed now that you're, you're kind of going down that same path and you understand it more and do you hold your dad less accountable for it? Or yeah, I mean, that's, I've never really packaged that question up before. Does that make sense what I'm asking? Kind of. I mean, I did. I did hold a lot of resentment to my towards my dad. You know, especially you know growing up, I always said I will never ever end up like him. You know, and I mean, all the way through high school, I was you know very anti-drug, very anti-alcohol. I actually didn't have my first drink till I was 17 or 18 years old, just sure. about out of high school. And you know, we, me and my buddies, went up to my. Uh, we have a cabin in Yankton, South Dakota, and we went up there and my dad actually found the alcohol we were going to drink. And he just said, you know what, don't tell your mother. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly, you know, what happened. So he gave us our alcohol back. And the first time I ever drank, I drank an entire bottle of Jack Daniels to myself. And, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that should tell you right there. That's, you know, the first time you ever go out, it was never one, you know, let's just try one or two. It was, you know, from there, from the first time I ever drank, it was, you know, going full throttle. I mean, and it was always, you know, liquor. You know, usually, you know, whiskey is my drink of choice and was my drink of choice. And uh, that's, you know, it was always full throttle for me. Sure. And you mentioned and earlier so, when you, you kind of put some rules in the place and around four or five o'clock, you had to have that drink. Yeah. Describe to listeners what that feeling was like. Uh, very irritable. I mean, you know, at the time I was running a lawn mowing company and, you know, so I would be rushing to get, you know, all, all of that stuff done so I could just, you know, get into my truck and, you know, get, get home as quick as I can. And, you know, I'm, I'm not proud to say that I did, you know, what I did, but I did, you know, I always, you know, would stop off at the closest liquor store or gas station and grab a six pack and, you know, grab, uh, you know, a fifth or, you know, whatever of whiskey and I'd, you know, hide that beer, you know, and be driving home just to get my first one, you know, and I would just be, you know, it was that, that would start my night off, you know, and if I could go out with friends, that was great. But most of the time it became pretty, pretty lonely after a while. You know, I just, I had to have that first drink. It made me very, very irritable around, to be around people who, you know, would obstruct me from getting that. Uh, Or if, you know, something happened where I had to work later than five or six o'clock, I would get very angry, you know, at nothing, you know, sure. nothing. That... Yeah. And you mentioned the word became, and that's the progression where it became lonely. Yeah. And there was a time when I was drinking where it was a fun party. I was always surrounded by people, but it became lonely where I was just drinking by myself. 
in my condo. It was, yeah, it was a bad spot. So, so you mentioned a 24, that's when you kind of realize, wait a second, I might need to pump the brakes. And then you tried the moderation, only drinking on weekends, put the plans into place. You know, when did you finally gain some traction? Was it 514 days ago? Was there a rock bottom moment? You know, cause 514 days, that's huge, man. Congratulations on that. that that's huge. And, and yeah, so what, what, what happened? How'd you finally make the shift? You know, so what happened is, I mean, you know, as we talk about the progression, I, you know, I said, I mentioned that I got a DUI. That really, you know, as far as the shift goes, I mean, I know I'm kind of backtracking here a little bit, but when I got my DUI, I isolated very much. I was like, you know what, I'm not going to, you know, drink and drive anymore, you know, and so I isolated very much and ended up staying at home a lot. And so what happened is I just kept drinking heavier and heavier and heavier. And my, you know, when I started gaining traction, uh, what happened is I was really getting to the point towards the end of my drinking that over the last six or seven years, it's gotten to the point where I was starting to have a lot of health problems. And I was 40 pounds overweight. I had high blood pressure uh, to the point of almost like in stroke territory. I had high liver enzymes. And so, you know, that scared me pretty hard, but I was kind of at the point where I just didn't care anymore. You know, I didn't care if I lived or died. And that's what, you know, kind of scared me into, you know, getting, getting sober, I guess. Never, never had any health issues, you know, in the past where I was always scared to go to the doctor, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, to even have them tell me. And so I started gaining, you know, that's when I really, you know, started to pump the brakes. I was declined life insurance because of all my health issues. And so, you know, I was at the point where, you know, I I couldn't even get life insurance, you know, so if I did die, you know, my family would be on the hook for, you know, everything. Yeah. And it's expensive. So I, that's when I decided to really start getting sober. And and Zach, our bodies are beautiful creatures and it will tell us what we need to do. And looking back, you know, my mid twenties when I was in Spain, my body was telling me to quit drinking. I ignored those symptoms for several years, and it sounds like your body was telling you just that. Elevated liver enzymes, um, you know, forty pounds overweight. There was something else you mentioned that I that I forgot. You were declining life insurance. I mean, your body, your body was talking to you, telling you, look, we are ingesting something, some foreign substance that's not supposed to be in here, and you quit. You listen to it. And there's a lot of people that don't listen to it. So I got to give you kudos on that. Nice job. And, and so a lot of people, that's not enough, right? Was it like a rock bottom moment or was it just compiled? It all compiled. And you're like, look, I got to quit drinking. Yeah. What happened? Well, I would say that for, for years leading up to that, I mean, lying to myself every day, you know, and that's really what it was telling myself, Oh, well, tonight is the night I won't drink tomorrow night or you know, this, this weekend, I only drink on the weekends. You know, you can only lie to yourself so much before you get to the point where you're just pressed and you don't you don't care. So I was kind of getting to that point leading up to this. So I mean it was it was tough to be at that point. So when you know, when I found out about all this health stuff, that's really kinda of where it pushed me into my final like I have to do something and to change to change everything. I don't know if I mentioned, like, when I moved out, you know, I moved out to Colorado from Nebraska. That was kind of a, you know, a geographical cure, which didn't work, because when I came out here, I ended up bringing all my same problems with me. So, I, you know, I lived in Colorado for about a year before I actually got sober. And so I can tell you, <laughs> you know, geographical cures definitely don't work. No, no, they don't. <laughs> it didn't work for me and didn't work for a lot of other people I've talked to. 
So how, how'd you do it? Yeah, how'd you do it? Well, after I thought, I found out like December 27th that I was declined life insurance. So great Christmas gift to myself. I basically was like, well, you know, whatever. So I just kind of, for the next couple of days, I, you know, just kind of didn't give give a crap. And I decided that January 1st, which I can't tell you how many January 1st, I mean, I had six, seven, eight January 1st where I always said, I, you know, I'm not going to drink and I'd make it a week, two weeks, and you just end up relapsing. I think it's 18 well, days is like the average New Year's revolution. I think, it, I think 18 days is if I recall <laughs> correctly. Yeah, you crushed that, man. Nice job. Yeah, and so that, that's what I did. I decided January 1st, and I, I made it about, you know, again, like 14 days, and then I really started to hit that, well, maybe I don't have a problem, you know, so oh, it's just starting okay. to kind of lie to myself and again, and it's my addiction lying to me in my own voice. And so I tried to keep, you know, pretty strong to get past that those 14 days, and I made it about three or four weeks, and I, I actually went out, and I bought a bottle of whiskey, and I brought it home. And my wife was working at the time and figured, well, I'll have time to, you know, have a few before she gets home. And I actually opened the bottle, and the minute I smelled it, I just couldn't, you know, I was like, I'm going to throw away the longest time I ever had sober, which is three weeks. And, you know, in the last 11 years, 12, 12, 13 years, the longest I've ever had is a couple of weeks. And I was like, am I really going to throw away the longest? time that I've had sober and I ended up dumping it out and um, doing some online forums and starting to really research heavily what I can do to stay sober. Whoa, and, uh, that, that's huge. That's I love I love stories like that because we've we've all been there. And, and yeah, you had you know weeks that you're going to throw away. But sometimes we have like we like two or three days or 72 hours or like just a night of sobriety. And we all reach that crossroads. We all are staring down a bottle or in the grocery store line. And, yeah, like there's this cognitive distance, like the two people on each side of the shoulder. It's just like, yeah, let's do it. Let's not do it. And, and tell us a little bit more about that moment and, like, what finally pulled you out of it. Because something inside you was like, Zach, we're not doing this. And that voice was more powerful than your addiction. Yeah, tell, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, previous to all that, I, I've been kind of listening to podcasts on and off yours and a few others. And what I decided was, I just I was looking at that bottle and I said, you know, I need I need to start creating some sort of accountability to make sure that I I can make it through this because you you can't do it. I'm, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to do it by yourself. You know, I, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's it's a hundred times harder to do it by yourself. So I, I got online and I found several forums and I decided to get get on there and create a little bit of accountability. And there's a, a forum out there, it's called Sober Recovery, and it's basically like a blog forum thing that I did. And I just started blogging about that. And I got so many responses of people saying, don't drink it, you know, huh. dump it out. And because I actually shared that experience, that was the first experience I ever shared on that website. And it was good to feel, you know, there's support out there because at that point I hadn't told my wife anything you know that I had quit because there was so many times where I had said let's cut back but I had never opened up to her about my drinking or anything like that and so you know I, I couldn't really go to her and she, she's a normal drinker if she has one beer you know or a couple of beers a year that's that's a lot so it's you know very rare that she drinks a lot and so I couldn't really go to her or I felt as if I couldn't go to her because I thought she might not understand. But, uh, you know, I went several weeks 
doing, you know, blogging about it, doing a lot of online things. And I was about three months in before I actually went to her and said, I quit drinking and it's been really, really difficult for me. Now, I didn't go into detail about my drinking habits and I still, to this day, have not gone into extreme detail about all of my drinking habits. But she knows that I'm, uh, you know, I'm done drinking. And so I kind of created that accountability, which was the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. Whenever I, whenever she would come home, you know, the, the dreaded question, you know, how much have you had to drink or have you been drinking? You know, she could always tell. And I just felt the disappointment in her eyes and her inner words. And so after I had told her, listen, I'm, I'm suffering with this, I just, this is not easy for me to let her know. Uh, she actually told me that she had no idea that I had been suffering with this for so long because I never opened up about it because we, we isolate, or at least I do, I, I isolate away from sharing any sort of emotion toward, to anybody. So she had no idea because I, I didn't open up to her. And that was a huge weight off of my shoulders after three months. And I kind of wish that I had done it sooner because it, I feel like it would have been a weight off my shoulders a lot sooner. And I was able to create that accountability with her after like three or four months. Wow. And you didn't... And you mentioned before I hit record that you, you still don't feel like you fully come out with with your wife about it in, in depth. And, and you mentioned like you want your wife to hear this recording, which is fantastic. And let's let's go a step further. She is going to hear this. And what would you like to say to her? Basically, I'd, I'd just like to tell her that I'm sorry for you know everything that I put her through. It's been extremely rough, and I'm sorry that I isolated and basically did not op open up the way that I should have. Hardest thing for me was lying, talking about she would always she would always come home and ask me, you know, how many drinks have you had, and I would always say two, but the, the two beers that I would have would also be I would sneak out and have you know several drinks off of a bottle, so I was a lot drunker than I ever said I was, and it's extremely difficult to face that and tell her that I lied and I'm very sorry about that. I never meant to hurt her or hurt, hurt her in any way. You know, it was, uh, you know, just the isolation and the fear of, you know, her not understanding how, what I was going through. After I finally told her, it was a huge weight off my shoulders. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for, for all the uh, emotional trauma that I've put her through and that this disease has caused her. Yeah, man. And Zach, you're walking the walk, man. The proof is in the pudding. You got 514 days on your belt. You said it earlier. You're like, it's near impossible to do it alone. I'm going to go one step further and say it is impossible to do it alone. I'm sure I'm going to get an email saying like, hey, you know, like, but uh, no, it's impossible to do this alone. And the good news is, is you got like the most important person in your life on your team now. And that's so awesome. You brought her on board. So I got, I bet that feels nice, right? It really does. I mean, to expound a little bit further on, you know, not being able to do it alone. After about, I would say, you know, I got about nine or ten months under my belt. And I really started struggling pretty hardcore. And I realized that I wasn't really, I, I just, I had, basically just taking alcohol out of my life and I was keeping myself extremely busy running and hiking and you know that that's not a very emotionally healthy I was not working on my emotional self and I realized I needed 
to really find something to help me with that. And uh, that's actually when I joined the Cafe Ari. Oh, cool. Uh, and yeah, and that has been such a huge help and, a, you know, a huge part of me growing more emotionally in the last six months than I did in the previous eight or nine months. I think I joined Cafe Ari in October and uh, I'm part of the Cafe Ari Blue group. Team Blue. Uh, and, you know, Yep, and they have been very, very helpful. And, I, you know, I, I've actually kind of redoubled my effort to be more active in the group than I already am. I still have not posted a single video on FARE, and I do plan on doing that to get more outside of my comfort zone so I can stay sober and I don't I don't have to struggle as much as I was towards the end of last year and some of this year as well. Uh, and so FARE was definitely a huge help. Well, Zach, check your Facebook notifications because there's this certain guy, myself, who's going to tag you in a post and say, hey, Zach, how about that first video? <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to get way outside of our comfort zone today. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. And, and tell us about more about the 8 to 10th month time frame because that can be a confusing – and I went through it myself. And then I went through it myself again like three and a half years into sobriety. Like we assume that all the problems – just go away. We assume quitting alcohol is going to be a panacea effect of greatness in our life. What was that like in about eight to 10 months? And then you realize like, wait, I need to make some changes. Yeah. Tell us more about that time. Well, after probably four, three, four or five months, I started to come off, you know, they, they described it as the pink cloud. Sure. And uh, I felt like I was just coming down off of that. And so I just kept keeping myself extremely, extremely busy. I mean, working 50, 60 hours a week, hiking, running. I actually lost uh, 40 pounds, and uh, I ran my first half marathon, and nice. um, I, I run the Spartan marathon, the Spartan races, and just a little bit more about that, I'm actually getting my trifecta this year, which is all three races in one year. Wow. But I'm pretty excited about that. That's what I'm trying to accomplish this year, but towards the, you know, towards eight or ten months, you know, right around there, I really just slowed down, and I realized, like, I'm just filling my time I'm not actually growing emotionally at all I'm not you know I'm not I'm not helping myself by keeping this busy because you can't keep that busy forever that's a Um, big value bomb right there Zach that's a big one you just dropped it's I'm just filling my time I'm not exactly growing emotionally that that's a big one and I, I did that for two and a half years for the most part, when I had my first stand at sobriety from 2010 to 2012 and a half, like I just filled my time, basically. Like that That's huge. You recognized it about eight to ten months. I didn't recognize it. So nice job. Yeah, it's definitely in, in, in part to listening to all the podcasts. I mean, I, I was to yours and Omar's other share podcast, and that really helped me realize that I need to do something that I need to grow emotionally. I can't just keep doing this. So, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do it without assistance from, you know, the people who put their work in a little bit before I did or a long time before I did. Yeah. And back to your, your, your wife, how has your relationship changed with your life in the last 514 days? Well, my relationship with my wife is a lot better. I mean, I, I open up to her about more about how I'm feeling. It's really hard for me. I'm a type A personality. It's very hard for me to open up about my emotions. And so our relationship has gotten a lot stronger over the last eight to 10 months. 
it's gotten a lot stronger because I've finally been able to just tell her a little bit more. Uh, you know, every couple of months I tell her a little bit more and I open up emotionally about how, how my day actually was and realizing what am, am I actually, you know, angry or lonely or just upset or stressed out or, you know, hungry or any, I think halt is a really good one, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been able to really realize like some of my addictive behavior uh, really fell into that. And with me and her relationship, you know, I would take that stress out and be angry with her and store it with her. And I'm, she has noticed a huge change in the, you know, since I've been sober with me being a lot more emotionally available. Uh, so it's been, it's been really good. Yeah, that's great to hear. And, and walk us through a typical day in your recovery. How are you doing it? Uh, well, I actually wake up about 4 a.m. every day. I start my day off with anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half workout. I run and I, work, I have a home gym as well. Wait, back it up. Uh, 4, 4, 4 a.m.? Did you say 4 a.m.? I did, yeah. At okay, 4 o'clock okay, in the morning. Okay, okay. Yeah. the Miracle Morning says 5 a.m., <laughs> and even that's hard to do. 4 a.m., Jesus <laughs> Christ. What time do you go to bed? 6? Uh, I used to go to bed around 8 or 9. Wow. Yep, and then get up, right. you know, between three and five days a week. Usually how my day starts, uh, which i got to say it's a great way to start the morning because you've accomplished something and so you feel really, really good. Gratitude list uh, has been very helpful. I actually, me and my wife have a gratitude chalkboard uh, at home. And oh, cool. we, we write down what, what, we're great, what we're grateful for. And that's it's really, that, that helps our relationship as well. And then uh, I usually get to work about 6.15 or 6.30. And then my days usually end, you know, anywhere between 3 and 6 o'clock. And, you know, then I spend some time working on my house. And we walk our dogs. We're we're, we're in the process of remodeling a home, so we do that as well. Uh, You know, and I know that 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 keeps me pretty busy, but we do spend, you know, a good portion of time, you know, relaxing and talking to each other about our day. And we, we try to always find between 15 minutes and a half an hour to, like, really discuss how our day goes and it usually ends up being a lot longer conversation which that never happened because i would you know if i if i talked you'd know how drunk i actually was so when i was drinking that that wasn't really an option to talk well yeah and connecting with your life partner wasn't a priority at that time is that does that chalkboard gratitude list ever turn into a honey do list i can see your spouse writing like yeah I, I, i'm thankful for ice cream and, and sweetie you should go get some <laughs> <laughs> Well, we do have our grocery list on top of it, but yeah, I mean, sometimes it, you know, sometimes it does. It's a relatively new thing for us to have that on the board, but it's it's great. It does. You know, it, it helps us. <laughs> a well manicured lawn that does not go on the gratitude list, sweetheart. <laughs> no, that that does not. <laughs> oh, that is so cool! A shared gratitude list. That's uh, the chalkboard. I've never heard about that. I love it. That is so cool. I love it. There's so many cool things that you guys are doing out there. I love it when I hear something new that I haven't heard about before. Yeah, and I got a couple questions before we hit the rapid fire round. You know, what do you value most in recovery, Zach? I would say that better relationships with people. Uh, you know, I don't feel as isolated, so I value that extremely. A lot more times with friends and, of course, my wife. So that, that's, that's what I value the most. And give me your proudest moment in sobriety. After I ran my first my first marathon, I was pretty proud of that. Or half, I'm sorry, half marathon. I ran my first half marathon, and I've run a couple of half marathons after that. 
but I mean, definitely my achievements in exercise uh, have been you know, some of my proudest moments. Sure, that's awesome. And Zach, we've reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yep. All right. What was your worst memory from drinking, Zach? DUI. Definitely a DUI. We've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating I can't control my drinking? Yeah, I did only with with my DUI that was my first oh shit moment and then running out to my truck and drinking, you know, out of a bottle, just trying to get as much alcohol in as possible. That that definitely tells me that I couldn't control it. And Zach, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? You know, still one day at a time. I mean taking it one day at a time and just going forward, keeping keeping those relationships and creating accountability. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? I'm going to say that it is Cafe RE, you know, because it's, it's accessible and I can get, I can check it every day. Yeah, and Zach, I'm actually in the works of adding a forum to that. So we've got like we've got the different recovery groups. There's Team Blue, there's Team Just Cafe RE, and the third one's on the way. And we're going to be connecting them via, via forum. So stick around. There's going to be some really cool changes coming down the pipeline. And in, in regards to sobriety, Zach, what's the best advice you've ever received? Create accountability and do it as quickly as you can in sobriety with as many people as you can. The more accountability you can create, the more open and honest you can be, I feel like that, that's going to help not speed up recovery, but it's going to make you feel a lot more comfortable a lot quicker. Absolutely. And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are in recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? Just take it one day at a time. Don't don't drink and you know, I mean, yeah, obviously don't drink, but you know, just take it one day at a time. I love it. And before we depart, Zach, give listeners your own customized you might be an alcohol gift line. You might be an alcoholic if you get a DUI and the first place you go after your release to your friends is to the liquor store. <laughs> yeah, that works. <laughs> That's a good one. Zach, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Much appreciated. Yep. Thank you. Comedian John Oliver has a fantastic show on HBO called Last Week Tonight. On May 12th, he came out with a segment about the rehab industry. If you are considering going to rehab, I highly recommend you watch this clip. Basically, it says, everything about this industry is incredibly difficult to navigate. Even one of its own trade groups, the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, says that some sectors of this industry are out of control. John Oliver mentions Tom McClellan, who was Obama's drug and addiction chief. You would think that if anyone knew this world, it would be him. Tom says he had become an expert in the addiction field, and then when his son became addicted, he had no idea what to do. All the training and on-the-job experience didn't prepare him for the fundamental question of where to send his kid. Even the nation's deputy drug and addiction czar couldn't confidently navigate this system. Unfortunately, Tom McClellan's son died. So much about battling addiction and alcohol is really hard. Staying sober is really hard. But getting good, evidence-based, trustworthy help, that should be the easy part. Unfortunately, it isn't. I can tell you, if you are looking at rehab, I personally volunteered at a place called Hope Rehab in Thailand. I was there for about 15 days. The staff and everything was fantastic. I do not get any kickbacks or commissions for saying that. I understand that finding a rehab center after what I saw in that clip can be extremely perilous and, and scary. And before I depart, I want to mention there is a group of us going to Rhythmia in Costa Rica. That is the place I discuss in episode 170, The Heart and the Soul. 
If you're interested in attending this retreat, send me an email to paul at recoveryelevator.com and I'll get you more information. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Thank you.